0: Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schindler, joined again by my colleague, Caitlin Cooper, as is becoming tradition for Thursdays now. We're doing our second edition of The One Podcast. Uh, Caitlin, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good. I'm excited to get through the next group of five of these. And and thank you to the commenter who pointed out last week that I didn't uh, specify on the pod that the under 25s weren't going to include Miles and Sabonis. They are coming. They will come on episode three, but for this week, we're hitting up the bench. So Mark, again, has been kind enough to take three players, whereas I have two. So I'm going to toss it over to you first. Who are we coming for?
0: Oh, we're coming for Jakar Sampson first.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, I think uh, he's, he's an interesting player that we can get uh, get through because we got, we got a lot to talk about on this pod, starting to get into kind of the meat of the roster a little bit. Um, so I think the one play that epitomizes Jakar for me Uh, And it'll sound weird. I'm interested to see what you think on it because it's not necessarily the one that you would think of right away. Um, I I look a lot at, especially, you know, I always have to provide an intro for everything, but, you know, I mean with Jakar, um, he really didn't even get a ton of playing time until, I mean, we saw his playing time ratchet up in the bubble with Sponis out, obviously, and him taking over um, the backup center minutes. And he just kind of always found a way to step up and, provide something which sounds so cliche and like uh, mm. JV basketball coach for me to say that but it's, <laughs> it's just true um and so the play that I chose was against Orlando in the bubble uh Jakar Sampson uh comes up off the left wing and he gets the ball at the top of the key I mean on, on like the left side of the key and he he faces up and drives against Kem Birch it spins pivots and then lays it in so you know it's the first time we saw Jakar post up and do something in the post like it felt like the entire year and just scored with ease and it looked like completely beautiful and i remember i almost jumped off my couch i mean the pictures were up i think 19 or they went up 19 after we scored that um but to me that was just it was just like the most random thing that could happen but it it also felt uh like okay it makes sense Jakar did it i mean Jakar always comes in and he provides that that just he always seemed – it actually felt like he was the only one on the bench who could create their own offense, whether it was off of an offensive rebound or um, just a quick lay-in or something. Uh, he always just kind of was finding a way around the basket to, to be productive. and I, So I thought that really stuck out for me, just him always finding something random that, that, that got the bench going.
1: Right. So, uh, yeah, I think that um, that's a good one because he kind of has a sneaky up fake when he's, yeah, when he's under his, the rim, his, like spinning and he has a sneaky up fake because he did that in one of the scrimmage games, I think, against Portland, too. Like, obviously, it didn't count for anything, but I do remember uh, him getting the ball and spinning and then using an up fake to go up. But, yeah, I mean, he's definitely uh, a high-energy guy, can be a little bit of a bull in a china shop at times, too. <laughs> I know, I, know I, I didn't necessarily mean it derogatory when I said it, but, like, I compare him a bit to, like, low-calorie Thad
0: <laughs> that was one of my favorite tweets you ever had. That was great.
1: Um, because he's so good at manufacturing angles as, as a second um, secondary guy along the baseline out of like a dump off pass, like he's really good at finding the right spot there, which is a skill. Like not everybody's great at that and and he he brings defensive energy. I do wonder, since he is a free agent, we kind of do have to project a little bit to the future. I'm not sure, like, given some of the coaching candidates that are out there, and obviously we don't know where the Pacers are going with that, but because he isn't a pick-and-roll player and he doesn't space the floor as a big, I'm not sure there's, like, a clear-cut role, like, especially in a D'Antoni offense. I don't really see a Jakar Sampson type player fitting into that type of mold. But for what the Pacers, you know, I don't think they are really expecting him to be a rotation player, but he definitely did step up in the best way with what skill set he has in that series, even though, you know, you could see some of the shortcomings and that he's not, you know, uh, like I said, he, I think he ran like a total, I might've said this on the prior pod too. He ran a total of four possessions against the heat as a pick and roll man, which those are ones that he's using. That's not counting every time you would have set a ball screen, mm-hmm. but he was very rarely setting a ball screen to run that type of offense. Cause that just really isn't who he is, but yeah, my long soliloquy, I will lead you into what is your one number?
0: Yeah, well, before I say my one number, it makes me wish that Thad was still on the roster so we could talk about his, his Southpaw post game. It was one of my favorite things to ever watch. I think that was one of the first times I knew I was weird about basketball because I, I watched a highlight reel of, of Thad in 2014 when he was with Brooklyn just having his – he has such an awkward postgame, but it's it's effective. We're, you know, not as much with the Pacers, but uh, always love, love Thad. Um, so my one number is 21. Can you guess what it is?
1: 21. Is that the number of games he played?
0: That is the number of dunks that had this year. Oh, number of dunks.
1: (laughs) That's
0: the number of dunks. And then that leads me into my second number, which is 30.8. And uh, the 21 dunks were 30.8% of Jakar's total made shots this year, (laughs) which in some ways is surprising, (laughs) other ways really not surprising at all, considering uh, anything he was doing was a putback or like a 10-footer.
1: Well, yeah, because who could forget the bubble game against the Lakers when the Lakers were, like, totally in sleepwalk mode to start that game, and he's just, like, coming out there and jamming home putbacks <laughs> out of nowhere. Like, I don't think anyone has quite as much flair for a putback on the Pacers roster as Jakar. Like, he's just out oh, of yeah. nowhere, and there he is. He's but... there
0: to destroy the basket. It's There's no such thing as a as a simple slam. He's always there to just try and destroy the rim, and I love it
1: definitely an entertaining watch so what let's hit the, the over under i'm ready uh, for my prediction. yeah
0: well you kind of answered it a little bit earlier actually i might have my number is 10 for over under and is in terms of uh position on the roster um which i think i would definitely hit the under um because he was he, he found his way into the 10th man kind of ninth man spot this year mm-hmm. in the playoffs with tj mcconnell slipping out a little bit but um you know now that i really think about it and what you said, I think. Now, I'm not entirely sure that he'll be back with the Pacers, unfortunately. But I do think I would also say that he uh, he solidified a spot in the league. I mean, I think he, yeah. he really showed his his medal this year. So I, I wonder what. Well, I mean,
1: on that. yeah, I mean, I think that I mean he was obviously playing a lot of backup five in the bubble, and I would you know if they're it's so hard to say so much with the Pacers because you really don't know what direction they're going to go in from a coaching standpoint or a roster standpoint. But if we're just, we just operate under the assumption, like let's just look at it as, you know, the starters and everybody's coming back who's currently under, under contract and you have miles and Sabonis, hopefully, you know, taking up most of those center minutes, you already need to find some sort of a niche to get some sort of development out of Goga. So I, I can't really put Jakar ahead of Goga in the sense that there's so much more that that Goga could do. I mean, I think theoretically, like I said, we haven't seen it yet, but you're hoping that he can develop a little bit more of a consistent three-point shot. He has more passing skills. You can use him in the pick-and-roll. That isn't really what Jakar is. Now they are – they could potentially be – in at the four depending upon what goes on I just don't necessarily see like I said like we we don't know who the coach is but like definitely if it's Mike D'Antoni I don't think Jakar Sampson is a traditional Mike D'Antoni four so and then also it comes down to roster spots I mean they do have a second round pick and I mean they can go different ways with that they could use the pick they could move the pick they could you know ultimately you know you don't know what they'll do there but you do need to have a spot for that guy and and I don't know. We'll see, but I agree with you that I could see him still sticking. Like I think he definitely showed enough that on another roster, there might be more space for him. But you know, anything can happen. I just feel like the Pacers are so up in the air.
0: Yeah, you just wish that he could take even corner threes a little bit. I think that would totally change his uh, his playability in my mind. Because I mean, you can't. I mean, you could obviously play him with Sabonis, um, but if he just had like even a slight three, it would it would totally make the world for him.
1: Yeah, because the double big minutes that they he tried to play with Goga, which that was Goga's first game in, like, like months on end. But against Phoenix, those weren't great minutes to play no, nicely. Not. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so who is your first player?
1: Oh, I don't – it's a tough choice. I think I think we'll go with Jeremy Lamb.
0: All right, I'm excited. So,
1: once again, I'm going to irritate everybody with my clicking because that's just how I am, I guess. But
0: – Sorry. Sorry.
1: Good. Hopefully it just gets sopped up by my mic. Okay. So I feel like with Jeremy Lamb and the broader narrative that I want to tell here, I'm taking us because obviously he didn't play in the bubble. So I'm taking us back to midway through the season and the Denver Nuggets are in town. Jokic is basically running wedge, pick and roll. He's he's set up at the elbow setting at a perpendicular pick. Well, I guess I should say a parallel pick to the sideline. So they're running wedge. Jeremy is attempting to guard Michael Porter Jr., which the Pacers really didn't have anybody to guard Michael Porter Jr. in that particular game. And mm-hmm. and T.J. Warren is guarding Jamal Murray because they've rotated a lot of people onto Murray at this point. But um, basically what the Nuggets are attempting to run is, is with Jokic there at the elbow, Michael Porter Jr. is going to come over there, and he has the option to either flare off of it or to cut straight to the basket with Jamal Murray trailing him, and he's going to make a read based on what Michael Porter Jr. does. So Michael Porter Jr. makes a quick dash to the basket, and Jeremy is way has come completely um, not remotely attached at this point. So Miles scary. Turner, through no defense of his like no fault of his own, has to come all the way off of Jokic to provide support on this cut. At the same time, T.J. Warren's having to now come across the screen where Jamal Murray's getting the ball at the wing and Miles is all all the way off of Jokic because he didn't have a choice. Jokic is now stepping back to three, and Jamal has the ball and is dribbling hard toward the rim, and now Jeremy has to come off of Michael Porter Jr. again just to provide weak side rim protection. He's not quick enough on the rotation, and Jamal easily scores a layup, so there's like probably two solid defensive mistakes there, and like not to harp on it too much, but I think that it brings up the point that a lot of times he struggled with closeouts he struggled to stay attached and he's not really going to be a point of attack defender so while he like i've given this quite a bit of thought in that you know the pacers were obviously hurt in the playoffs by the fact that they didn't have you know jeremy was out as a potential scorer sabonis is out victor's limited but like looking at jeremy's role in that miami heat series and i'll i'll throw this to you too Mm -hmm. is you know the heat obviously were switching most of the ball screens not every off ball screen but some of them and jeremy in theory gives you another guy that's going to be able to go get a shot he can operate he doesn't have any one like singular great offensive skill but he can do a lot of things offensively and he's a better option to get his own shot than you know tj mcconnell in that same instance off the bench but in theory i would think that the pacers probably still would have brought him off the bench because then he's getting more touches in that role but then you're looking at the Heat's matchups defensively, and it's like, who would Jeremy have been able to guard? Like, he's going to have to be scoring a lot of points to make up for some of the defensive issues at the other end. Cause it's not like he's providing the same degree of gravity as a spot up shooter mm-hmm. as what Justin or Doug is, is going to bring just to open stuff up. And like, you look at the various people, like, if, if he's guarding Jay Crowder, Jeremy's not a great weak side tagger. Like, to come off and be able to tag like Bam and get back to Crowder wouldn't have been great. I don't really trust him chasing guys through screens like a Hero or a Duncan Robinson. And in this particular game that I just mentioned, he had been attempting to guard Jamal Murray on prior possessions, and that's why TJ Warren is doing it here. So because he can be somewhat of a variable scorer, it can be hit or miss because in this game – Jeremy put up 30 points in that game like and, and he can be so fun to watch at times so fluid so easy going like he can be a joy to watch score especially in elbow get situations then they play Denver later on in the season and he's 0 of 7 and never gets to the free throw line and ultimately they end up closing with Doug because Denver's pinching in out of their blitz coverage they need somebody in that blind spot that they can rely on to hit a shot and they ended up like I said, closing with Doug McDermott instead of Jeremy. So what do you kind of see based off of that as, you know, where he would have fit in in the playoffs or how the Pacers might, might might've used him if he had been available?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think I've actually spoken to you before about how much uh, Jeremy's closeouts would pay me during the regular season. Um, It's, it's confusing too, because I think he's, it's in, in watching him. It's not that he's not athletic enough. I think it's just, his off-ball defense is among the worst in in wings in the league, at least that are rotation-level guys. Um, I I don't know because I think that's a great point because you know you immediately think well maybe if he plays on Jay Crowder, uh, and that's an awesome point talking about him being a tagger. He can, that's not a good idea. <laughs> it would not work. Um, I I don't know what he does in that series. I think he does have to come off the bench, but then you think, I mean everyone on the Heat, which it's been so remarkable to watch the way that they've they've played and gelled. Um, I mean, there are like six or seven guys who you can count on that team to get their own shot. Um, so I don't know how you play Jeremy. I mean, I think I look almost at like, and, and this is going somewhere, I promise, but he reminds me a little bit of a guy like Torrey Craig, which I know Torrey Craig is a much better defender, um, but Torrey Craig is bad at guarding bigger wings, which I think that's there's a misconception about him that he's good at that. I think maybe Jeremy will hopefully in the future be able to get into a role where he can defend the point of attack just through sheer length. Cause he has like maybe the longest wingspan I've ever seen out of somebody six, five. I mean, he looks like he's six, six or six, seven sometimes, just cause of his length. Um, and that's what Torrey Craig is good at. He's good at corralling smaller ball handlers, um, with his length. And he's a much better off ball player and, and, uh, and just defender in general than Jeremy. But I think maybe that's the kind of direction he could go, um, Except at this point, I mean, he's already, what, this, is, this was his age 26 season, I think. Um, I'm interested to see how he molds under Dan Burke, if Dan Burke is still understaffed next year. I think he will be, but um I agree. And I, I wonder how his, his game would have transferred over, to because he's not really – I mean, he can get separation off step backs, and he's good at, yeah. you know, from his, like, 16 to, to 8 feet is kind of his range. He's not awesome at the rim but he's really good in that in-between area, but not great. So I wonder how he would hold up against the plethora of wing defenders. Uh, It's it's a really interesting thing to look at.
1: He did uh, um, average over a steal per game again for the second Mm -hmm. season in a row. So he does make use of some of his length, and I don't don't want this to sound like I'm suggesting that, like, Jeremy makes the Pacers worse because I don't think that. Like, I don't think that they would have been worse off in that series with Jeremy. I'm just wondering how much of a boost – is his score? What is scoring have been? And like you said, I think. I mean, I remember Steve Clifford even um, mentioned this back when he was still with Charlotte, talking about Jeremy that uh, he had made strides against switches, being able to sense contact, and like you say, either step back and get a shot, or be able to get bass and get to the rim. And I, I do think that. I think that that would have benefited them. But I'm just wondering, like. If he can't do that consistently, which was somewhat of an issue for the Pacers this year, like I said, just in those two games against Denver, one game he's scoring thirty, and the next mm-hmm. he's oh of seven. Like, I'm not sure it would have been as big of a boost as as some might assume. But and I will, this isn't my one number that I will share later on, but I do think this is interesting. I looked up a stat where this is probably what we would both assume, but just to put it in. Um, actual data here give us a data point that jeremy only played 34.7 percent of the team's minutes and games that were within five points in the final five minutes of the game where either the pacers were trailing by five or were ahead by five and by comparison justin played 48 percent of those minutes when lamb was off the floor so like obviously the Pacers didn't feel super good about having him out there in like high pressure situations, which, you know, that was in part like he wasn't really going to be the intended starter once Victor got back up to speed he was gonna to slide to the bench, but just a little roll there. So to uh segue into the one number, which actually what I just said was a good segue, but the one number <laughs> is is four. And do you have any guesses of what the number four is?
0: Four. Um is that how many fouls he averaged a game? No, I know it's not that high. Uh, <laughs> gosh, four. I I honestly have no idea you're gonna have to. Yeah,
1: film. so I, I get pretty unconventional with these numbers, so it really wasn't fair. But my number four is that's the number of games that he actually played off the bench. Like, oh, like by the time wow. yeah, it was that that's, low? Yeah, he, I mean he didn't have very many opportunities to come off the bench in these games because even once Victor got back, then Victor also had a few, you know, lingering injuries where he was in and out. And then TJ Warren had uh, the concussion where then Jeremy was back in the starting lineup for a bit. And I think there was another injury that, that uh, might've caused him to be in another different starting lineup. But just the point being that he never really had a chance to gel into that role. And yet you look at the numbers. I looked at this yesterday that when he, in the games that he came off a bench, which again, this is a very small sample size. It's only four. Um, he averaged 8.3 points on 34, 27, 66 shooting splits. So his production went down, and I thought in like this very limited amount of film that we have to look at, it kind of seemed like uh, there was a little bit of a challenge melding his offense to what, how that bench played. Like The two things oftentimes felt very separate. Either, they, either the existing bench with Sabonis and McConnell and McDermott and, and Justin was running like their normal swirling movement, yeah, and he was it. on the periphery. He was on the periphery of it, like standing there as a spot up guy, kind of watching it happen. Or it was the reverse of that, and he was like being used in an elbow get situation, or you know, a pick and roll situation with Sabonis. And then the other people were st- standing there just watching that play develop. So it didn't really seem like the two things ever really had a chance to to fit together.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree and that's it's interesting to look at too. I think um he's a guy who um his shot especially from 3 has been so inconsistent in his career and it finally was starting to pick up in Charlotte and then he shot I think 33 or 34% this year. Or it might have been 30. 33. No, yeah, 33.5. And I'm looking right now if you look if you take out the first stretch of the season and go from Christmas on um he actually shot above league average from 3 on pretty decent volume he shot um about 37%, which I wonder if that's something that we can look at going forward. I'm hoping because, you know, the first 20 games of the year, he shot barely 30%. Um, so I don't know. It, I'm really interested to see how he factors in. So I really like the signing. The money was good for him. Uh, he's mm-hmm. at the right age for the team. But, yeah, I think uh, his play style is just so opposite from what the bench does. You know, he's more of a – I don't want to call him an isolation scorer. He can score in isolation. But he's more right. like – he's like TJ Warren Light almost. Like, yeah, yeah. He, he can come off like pin downs or anything, get the ball, and then he can thrive off that. He's not a guy who has like quite the handle to set himself up. Um, yeah, I'm interested to see how he factors in, um, or if he factors in. I think he's a guy who could, not to talk stuff into existence, but I think just given the nature of his contract, he's a guy who could very easily be part of a trade package, but that's uh, neither here nor there. So what's actually, your over-under? Oh, I wait.
1: love that you brought up what you brought up, because my over-under is – 36% from 3 Ooh. which is interesting because just to give a little bit of background here I went and did because I know that the, there's like this overarching theory that when guys go down with an ACL injury that all they have the opportunity to do is shoot so that when they get back from from that that they're going to hit more shots from 3 so mm-hmm. To do a little bit of research as a side tangent, I went and looked up a bunch of guys who have suffered ACL injuries in the recent past and I hate to break it to you listeners, but it really wasn't as informative as I hoped that it would be because I looked at, um, Rondo was one that I used. I was trying to come up with guys that I knew had suffered one mm-hmm. and he was kind of interesting because his injury happened right at about the midway point of his career for where he is now. So, before he tore his ACL, he was shooting 24% from 3 and afterwards, he shot 34%, which is that's a big improvement. But the Rondo isn't like the best case study here because like people still don't believe he can shoot from three as we've seen in the playoffs. So yep. even if he is knocking down those shots, he's not really knocking them down against defense. So you have to take that one with a little bit of a grain of salt. I looked at Derek Rose before both of his knee injuries and then after, and his was virtually the same other than the little blip in Minnesota. Like it was 31% before, and it's been 29% since. So virtually the same um, Lou Williams, Another one, during his time in Philadelphia, before he tore his ACL, he was at 34.5%. And since in Atlanta, Houston, and, and LA, he's been 355 So again, literally almost the same. And then I wanted to look at Ricky Rubio and Jabari Parker, but their injuries happened so close to the beginning of their careers. There really wasn't like a before yeah. and after. And then Jarrett Jack also tore his, but his was at the very end close to the end of his career like he only played like 30 more games after he tore it so there really was nothing to look at there either but so this really wasn't that helpful for you I'm sure but just (laughs) to let people know that I took the time to see if Jeremy Lamb could be in for a bump but we have the over under at 36 percent from three. I think he's only actually done that one season in his career, but as you said, he closed a little bit better this season.
0: Yeah, he shot thirty-seven percent in seventeen, eighteen, and that was his high. He shot thirty-five percent twice. Oh, actually he shot he shot thirty-seven percent his uh, second year in OKC as well. I didn't realize that.
1: Now um, I do think there's a trend with that guys, I mean, like we've seen with Victor, that when you come back with a late lower leg injury that uh, or injury I should say, excuse me for that mistake, that um they do take more threes mm-hmm. uh, guys spend more time out on the perimeter. So maybe that will influence some of your thinking there.
0: Wow. All right. I, I mean, just, uh, that's a good question. Um, I think a lot of it depends on what the roster looks like um, going into next year. Uh, just because I, I think we both agree that it's going to be different. Um, man, I think I'll take the under just history tends to repeat itself. I hope that Jeremy shot is better. Cause if, I mean if Jeremy could be a, a league average shooter from three or even slightly better, that that completely changes his game. Um so I hope I hope for the over, but I'll take the under.
1: Yeah, I think I would lean the under too, but I think I would be okay if he just like hit a consistent number. Like yeah. even if he settled into just below the mid thirties, but that's what he was consistently hitting, instead of one game I hit five threes, and then the next game <laughs> yes. I hit zero threes. I don't know if I did I mention it on here that he played 15 games this year out of his 42. 15 of the games he played, he, he did not attempt a free throw. Like no. that. Oh wow. Yeah. So he average he only averaged 2.4 free throw attempts, which I know you mentioned earlier about his you know, um, kind of diminished impact right around the rim. But that's in part because he he really likes the teardrop versus mm-hmm. getting in. He, he's a stop and pop guy. But like yeah, he played 15 games without attempting a free throw.
0: Wow, so I you'd kind of like
1: to see <laughs> one of the other of those two things shift a bit. Like either he can hit a few more threes or he can get into the paint and start drawing some fouls a little bit more than what he does. But yeah, so I'll be interested to see. I don't know how long it would take for him to get back from the ACL and I'm not going to speculate, but I'm ready for Jeremy Lamb's second act. Unless like you said, his contract does fit if they need salary matching. So we shall see. But on to the next player. Yes.
0: All right. So we're going to talk about Doug McDermott now.
1: Ooh. Uh,
0: his one play for me actually came against the Nuggets as well, but in the game during the February uh, Western Conference. When o- he had
1: to come in for Jerry Lam. Yes,
0: exactly. And so on this play, Doug comes off a pin down. Uh, Juancho Hernan Gomez is guarding him. Uh, Sabonis sets a screen. TJ McConnell's at the top of the uh, – probably about 10 feet off the top of the key. Passes it to Doug. Uh, Sabonis slips and Wancho goes underneath him and he double teams uh, Doug with Mason Plumlee. And Sabonis is wide open, but Doug passes out to TJ McConnell, uh, swings the ball to Justin Holiday, and easy three because he's wide open. Um, and I think that is kind of symbolic of Doug McDermott. Uh, I think one who watches the Nuggets might also influence. Uh, you know, implore that uh Juancho Hernan Gomez doesn't always make the best defensive decisions, but <laughs> this one too, I mean, you think of it in terms of Doug is just insanely good from three, and he has by far the best gravity on the team as, as somebody who can just totally warp the defense with his uh, cutting ability. Um, He actually, obviously not in terms of speed, but he's like He's, he's almost like Usain Bolt coming off of pin downs and on floppy motions. Like He just is a madman running. You can tell. I mean, it's totally drilled into his brain. That's what he does. And he's phenomenal at it, and teams are always scheming against it. And unfortunately, Miami scheming against it really well. Um, but that is my play for him.
1: Right. So, yeah, that's, that's a great game to point out for Doug because even in that one, what was telling there, I think, is um, – the series before, when they played Boston a year ago, which is a contrast from what Miami did, Boston would chase him over on those staggers or you know a lot of the off-ball actions that you're mentioning. They would chase him over, but then they would switch at the end of it. And Miami really wasn't switching a lot of the off-ball screens, though they were crowding him, and I, I'll get to that point later. But with Boston, so that was making it harder to involve Doug and getting him shots in that in that series and what i thought when you watch that nuggets game that i was hopeful for in a playoff series this year was that because the pacers have more shooters and they weren't there were plays a year ago when Tyreek Evans would be running pick and roll with Sabonis on the weak side, there'd be Corey Joseph and Thaddeus Young, and Boston did not care. Like, they were totally 2 nining both of those yeah. guys and basically providing a second line of defense for the second line of defense. And I remember thinking, okay, Doug could be more productive this season because Sabonis had grown in making plays out of the short roll and being able to look at the opposite corner and then pass it to the wing. And if they blitzed him like What Denver did, he could find those blind spots. I'm like, okay, so even if Doug isn't getting motion, he can still hit these spot-up shots out of these plays. And then, obviously, Sabonis wasn't there to make some of that for him. But a number that I will throw at you that goes right along with that play which I don't know, you might have read this in the one piece I wrote about one of the coaching candidates, so you probably you, – you may or may not already know it. How many corner threes do you think Doug McDermott has attempted in the last two playoff series, including Miami and Boston?
0: Uh, wow. And he played, he
1: played seven games because he did not play game four against Boston because he'd been played off the floor. But I, I promise seven I games, I, how many corner pieces, threes? But I
0: can't think of it. But right. It's definitely a lower number than you want it to be. Um, it
1: is in total. For seven playoff games, three. Three corner threes. And in in Miami's case, I thought what you could see some of the time was instead of the switching concept when they were bringing them off, they were really hitting, I mean, just pristine rotations. They call it a meeting of three when you're using lock and trail defense where the ball handler... Mm who makes the pass to Doug comes off of the ball handler and crowds that guy along with the big stepping up higher. And it was really hard for Doug to get shots out of that. And then they just didn't have any, they weren't adding extra wrinkles to finagle some of that. Like it was just basically, you know, we run this stagger for Doug or we run this twirl stagger for Doug and this is where he goes. And, and then a lot of it was also, he was just getting shots out of, you know, Malcolm or Brogdon isolates and then they're just kicking and, and the Heat were getting back and rotating because they mm-hmm. weren't taking quite as many extra steps off of Doug as they were some of the other players. But, yeah, three corner threes, like, that has to change. You have to be able – the next coach that comes in has to be able to find a way that he stays involved and can still get, whether it's a spot-up three or a motion three. Like, your best shooters that you're paying to shoot the ball have to be able to get attempts. I mean, he's yeah. he also just hasn't shot that well because of both of these defensive schemes. He's 2 of 17 or the last two playoff series. Yeah,
0: he shot, I, I was looking it up earlier too, He just in the playoffs in general. Cause he, he went to the playoffs with the Bulls and OKC as well before, and he shot 31.3% from three for his career in the playoffs. So not, yeah, not great, great, but uh, we, we remain hopeful. This this was not the ideal year for him to shoot from three um, with Sabonis out. But My one number is 20.2. Do you have a guess on what that is? 20.2.
1: No, I have no idea.
0: That is the differential between his home and away three point percentage
1: for, for the second year in a row.
0: Yep. It is just, I'll never forget the first time I saw that stat. And it's just like the most mind bending thing. And it's, you'd think, okay, maybe there's something there. No, it's the almost the exact same number of games 35 home games, 34 away. Um, and it's just remarkable. It's just almost the exact same number of attempts. Uh, like it's, it's kind of perplexing, and I wonder if you – do you have any theory on why it's dropped? Because none of the other – like, none of his other shooting numbers drop. It's just from three.
1: Yeah, and, and it's even weirder that it's the way that's the favorable side. Exactly. Because, <laughs>
0: that's so weird.
1: Um, I think Tom asked him about this like a year ago about – did he think that it impacted him that because the Pacers have the practice facility at St. Vincent that – he would be getting up shots there instead of the, at the arena. And I, Doug was like, no, like I just have to figure this out. And Yeah, I, I'd like to dig in because, I mean, it's mostly going to be the same opponents. I mean, you're, you're going to be playing one at home and one away, like with the exception of a couple people that you might have played more. I mean, sometimes in the Eastern Conference, you'll get three games instead of four. But mm-hmm. it, it just shouldn't be that dramatic of a swing. But, I mean, he also didn't shoot it that well in the bubble until they were about – five games in so you would think that if if he was a better away game shooter that being in the bubble in a shooter's gym that he should have seen more of a jump there but yeah it really I mean it definitely didn't materialize in the playoffs and it didn't he and Justin were both struggling through the scrimmages and the first you know half of the seating game schedule no I I mean it's just inexplicable I, I don't have an explanation for that
0: well, that's disappointing. I was hoping, but I, it's actually something I kind of want to go back and watch, uh, watch all of his threes and see if I can find anything. But I I surmise that I probably will not. Um, I, I, I just don't know how there can be anything, but I will look. Um, so and then going into my over under, my number is 300, and that is for threes attempted. Would you go over or under on that? Uh, his career, tell me how many
1: he attempted this year,
0: he attempted 294 this year, which was his career high. And his previous career high was the year before. And I think he took 212. Um, so I personally am, I think it, you might think right away, okay, well, maybe it's a home run and he, he, he takes, you take the over because there'll probably be a new coach. The team will take more threes. But I mean, you look at it and the bench had a really high three point attempt rate because of Doug um, and Justin. And I actually, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I believe the bench took, uh, I, I'm almost positively shot at a higher rate, but. Um, I don't know because then you, you wonder, well, is Doug going to get that many more minutes? You could actually see less minutes depending on how the roster changes. I don't know, there's a lot to it. It's uh, it's an interesting thought.
1: Well, the one thing I'll say there is that around the all star break, when there was the major push to get him in the three point shooting contest, uh, everybody's like, oh, you know, why doesn't Doug get this invite? He's at the top of the percentages, like near the top, and and The reason why this got reported out of San Antonio a year ago with Davis Bertans, that if you didn't have a high enough volume, the NBA wasn't going to invite you. So Davis Bertans at the time had the number one three point field goal percentage in the NBA, Mm -hmm. but did not get invited because he was attempting under five threes per game or like under 5.5 threes per game, which Doug was under around the time that they were making the list for this year. And You look at some of the other guys on the list, and Doug should be able to get five threes per game. Like, that's just something that should be able to happen, especially because, I mean, you look at it two years ago before he was playing with TJ McConnell, who um, TJ and Sabonis both were pretty crucial in his shot attempts because TJ is pretty good at being able to hit the corner with skip passes better than yeah. what Corey Joseph and Tyreek were. But if there's a new coach, I think that the coach is going to look at who are our best shooting weapons and how can we get those guys that sh- those shots. Cause like I wrote a little bit and the D'Antoni piece that the, the Rockets run a really nice play where even if a guy's standing in the corner, they still screen in, they pin in screen those guys, which helps you against a switch still be able to get a shot when teams are, you know, uh, mitigating some of the little cutesy stuff that they do with off ball movement, you can still get a three point attempt. So I, 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 I want to lean the over, but I get why you're hedging a bit with where his minutes might be. Or, I mean, even like we say, he's another guy that if it isn't Jeremy, then another team, if they do make a trade, he could be the guy that's the salary matching contract, but I want to be hopeful and I'm going to smash the over here. And think Oh yeah.
0: That, I'll take the uh, over too. I'll be actually, I, if he's still one. on the team next year, I'll be disappointed. If he doesn't hit over 300. Um, I think that it's definitely, definitely doable. Um, but yeah, who is, who is your next player? I'm excited to hear.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. So my other player is TJ McConnell, which this was just, I mean, I I feel like I have some recency bias in how I'm evaluating some of these people with the bubble action Mm -hmm. Jeremy excluded since he wasn't there. But I take us to game two of the Heat series, and I feel like this encapsulates why this series was tough for TJ McConnell. So here we are. The Pacers are setting a wide pin down for Justin Holliday with Jakar Sampson as the screener. Doug is dotting the weak side corner and Edmund Sumner is, is dotting the strong side corner. So TJ is dribbling in place, waiting for Justin to come off the pick. Kelly Olenek attempts to shoot the gap just because Justin's playing at the four and Justin tries to fade, but there's really no angle for TJ to make that pass. So, um, We have to pause so that I must say that at the beginning of last season, I wrote a piece about TJ McConnell and how good he was at using the setup of a play to go away from it and to get into the paint and be able to make a kick out from there. So that was one of his go-to things that when the Pacers would run a stagger, he would go away from that play and and catch his own defender off guard, watching Justin come off that screen and go right into the paint. So that's what he's going to do here, or he's going to attempt to. Goran is guarding him. Goran is watching Justin. He tries to get into the paint, and here we have Iggy loading the block at the elbow, and Tyler Hero comes all the way off of Edmund Sumner once again, and now T.J. is shooting one of his little patented uh, floater baseline turnaround thingies.
0: Off his back right foot, yes. Yes, yes, and he (laughs)
1: clanks it. He does not make that shot. So, like, that is who T.J. McConnell is at his core, like everything about that play, but it was not going to work particularly well against the Miami Heat's pack-the-paint defense and the fact of how the Heat guard the corners, especially when Edmund Sumner is guarding there. There just wasn't going to be a great way for T.J. McConnell to be playing his his fast-paced, go-against-the-grain, color-outside-the-lines of sets types of games. So I will get into a little bit more of that with my number later, but I'll let you react just to that.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh, I I do remember that play actually, and I it was really hard watching the bench, um, and not to sound like sappy or whatever, but I mean it, it just after that unit was so good during the regular season. I mean, I believe they were top ten bench unit in the league, and uh, it was just so clear what they were missing without Sabonis. I think we always talk about the Sabonis McDermott two man game, but I think. The just McConnell's bonus team game was great as well. Um, and they were so good at working in tandem to set up the players on the roster on, on the bench who were going to make shots. Um, so it's, it's stunk to kind of see uh, how much TJ struggled. I and mean, he actually was, I don't want to call him a defensive liability because he's, he's smart positionally and he's quick, but um, you know, he, he did struggle a little bit guarding. I, I don't remember who it was out on, but he went to go contest the shot and he was perfect on his closeout, but he's six foot one. And his wingspan is not that big, so he doesn't even get the hand in the guy's face. Uh, I think he was closing out on somebody who was like six six or six seven, and that was a routine thing in the playoffs uh, against the Heat. And I don't know. I think that there's a. Ton, I don't want to call him like an eighty-two game player or something like that, but he did have similar problems when he was in Philadelphia, and they went to the playoffs, and he didn't. He wasn't unplayable, but you saw he had to take kind of a diminished role. Um, and I think he's somebody who I know there have been. There have been mentions of him, you know, potentially his uh, his deal could be non-guaranteed for next year and he gets cut um, to save money on the cap or to open up another roster spot. Um, I think he's somebody that's so invaluable to the team. And obviously I'm not in the locker room, but you, I mean, you can tell he's kind of a, a coach on the sidelines type guy. And like the, the one moment that sticks out to me about TJ a lot is, I don't know if you remember, it was the game against Philly when TJ – Uh, Warren scored 53 and and Miles Turner and and Aaron holiday got into a verbal spat after um, there was a missed rotation and a very
1: random verbal spat. Yes,
0: exactly. Like, I don't even think Philly scored on it. I think it it results in a foul or something, but it was like out of nowhere. And TJ immediately pulls aside miles and talks to him. No, miles came off. So he immediately talked to Aaron. And then you could see him on the bench later when he came on, onto the bench talking to miles. And it's just like the little things like that, that, and make TJ such a valuable player to me. So that's my really long way of saying, I think, um, I I don't know, I don't necessarily expect things to change with him being a productive playoff player, Um, but the things that he provides the rest of the team is just kind of like that veteran uh, locker room guy, I think are huge.
1: Right, and the date to watch, you referenced that his deal is partially guaranteed, the date to watch for that is October 17th. And his deal is 3.5 million, but if it isn't guaranteed by October 17th, then, I mean, it becomes fully guaranteed on October 17th, excuse me. Mm -hmm. Otherwise they could waive him and it would only count as 1 million. So that's something to keep an eye on. I kind of lean with you that unless it's like, that's purely a financial decision. Otherwise I think that they're going to keep him on the roster. Like even if the new coach is like, you know, I want to give Aaron holiday more opportunity and, and we're going to move TJ to, you know, a, a more of a third string role, which I mean, they're going to have room for both of them because Jeremy's going to be out unless um, they want to get a closer look at Edmund Sumner as well. But I just think that what you say, I think he is a, a stronger locker room presence for the team. I, I appreciated the fact that every time that, you know, the Aaron versus TJ narrative was kind of there all year. And anytime he got asked about it, he – only ever said glowing things about Aaron holiday and how good he thought Aaron holiday was going to be. And, um, that, I think that shows some of his character and I, I, that's a good moment that you bring up about the Sixers. I remember that. And I also think that if, if somebody has an injury, I'm going to trust TJ McConnell to come into the game and be able to wheel and deal and keep it, keep an offense moving during the regular season. But my one number, which we basically kind of touched on, I once again got a little bit of a cheat here, but it's zero. And that's the number of minutes he played in game four. I mean, he, they, they no longer felt that it was worth it to be playing him in that playoff series because of all the things we mentioned, like you say. That bench lineup for what it was with when, when it was Aaron, before Aaron was a starter. When you have Aaron, Doug, Justin, surrounding him with three shooters... And you have Sabonis that he can run pick and roll with like that that was the ideal scenario for TJ McConnell to be able to thrive in the way that he did racking up all those assists for 36 minutes and really be able to play, play that free and loose style and once all that wasn't there. You know, again, like I said, with the way that the the heat guarded and helped off the corners, with the way that they are so well-conditioned and get back in pace, this was the number that I wanted to share, but I'm going to cheat and throw it out there anyways. During the regular season, when T.J. McConnell was on the floor, the Pacers played at a pace of 103. When he was off the court, they played at 99. Now, that 103 pace was the equivalent of a top-eight team in terms of possessions per 48 minutes. Now, in the playoffs – when he was on, the pace was 97, which, oh, I mean, wow. granted, playoff playoff pace slows anyways, but, yeah, but that was a, a product. Drop. that That's a big drop, and it, it was the same whether he was on the quarter off. So he really wasn't providing a big boost in terms of, you know, getting a stop and really jetting the ball up the floor because you watch the heat in all three of these series, and they're just – I mean, that's the benefit of quote-unquote heat culture when they're that well-conditioned to be getting up the court and being able to build a wall ahead of the offense. He does really wasn't getting anything for the Pacers in that type of a setting to the point where, you know, if, if we're not getting something there, and as you mentioned with some of the defensive issues because he is a smaller guard, that, you know, it's better to have more shooting on the floor. So, yeah, yeah. zero was the, was the number. And we'll keep an eye on the – on the October 17th day. But then in tandem with this, my over under is 46. And that is the number of games for him to play next
0: year. Oh, wow. That is good.
1: And I picked 46 because that's the number of games he played through January. Mm -hmm. And I'm pegging, like, we don't know when, how exactly how long Jeremy lamb is going to take to be out. But if we imagine that Jeremy lamb could be back, you know, midway, well, obviously it won't be January because we don't even know what the calendar year for this, this yeah. league is going to be. But whenever the season starts that many months into the year, that many games, I'll let you go from there. Ooh,
0: that's a good one. That is really tough. I Part of me wants to take the under because I think whoever is the new coach here will probably buck Aaron up in the, in the, in the rotation, which I think makes sense given what he did in the bubble and, and where he's headed. Um but at the same time, I could also see, A, an injury happening, uh, which obviously you don't want that to happen, but it's going to happen because it's basketball. It's what happens. Um, and then also, you could just think about him getting in in garbage time or just him getting in inset lineups. I think, man. Okay, well, if Mike D'Antoni's the coach, I would probably take the under because <laughs> – uh, the, just normally his rotations are a little bit smaller. Um, at least I don't know what it was like in Phoenix, but also in Houston, it made sense the rotations were smaller because they had about six and a half NBA players. Um, I, have a, you know, I'll take the over. I think I'll take the over just because I think there will be enough opportunities, even if you use the third string point guard. I think he'll find his way in.
1: Right, and also because I mean, we're looking at that's how many games you played before January. Like, if if Jeremy's not there, you theoretically still could be playing. McConnell and Aaron pending, like I said, what they want to do with Edmund Sumner, what sort of development he makes, and also, like, who they end up taking in the draft. But as you say, even if he's a third string, like, even when Aaron was the third string point guard as a rookie, he still played a number of games. Like, I I remember – I'm thinking that he would have hit that over as a rookie. Do you have that number?
0: I think Aaron – let me pull it up right now. I think
1: he was over – Um, I'm thinking that he played close to 50. Yeah, I. Which, granted, the Pacers have had not great luck with injuries the last few years, but
0: for damn sure. (laughs) Um, Aaron Holiday. Oh, he played just about. He played 37 games this rookie year.
1: Okay. So I was off, but close. So it, this really could go either way. Like I did a pretty pat myself on the back. I did a good job of setting that line. I think I'll lean. I don't know. Cause again, we don't know the coach. I think I'll lean the over just, just to bake in the safe money of, we have no idea. The unknown leads me to take the over, but I, I don't think there's a strong case anymore for playing him over Aaron. Like if that's the decision, I think that a coach is going to choose to play Aaron Holiday. I'll put it that way.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that it 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 would be uh very questionable for it to be otherwise. I would be kind of confused by that. But we will see. And now for our last player on uh, on today's pod, one who I think we're probably gonna spend the most time talking about because there's a lot to to break down with him, and I've thought about him a lot lately. And that's Justin Holiday,
1: um, one of my and, favorite role players ever.
0: He's incredible. I I've, I've and it's cool because I've seen a lot of people. Um, who are doing free agent reviews and they're talking about him and they're actually pointing out all of the really cool things about him. And I think it's starting to become, an, uh, people are starting to understand in general, but it's, you know, when he was signed, I, before we do the one play, I want to ask what your initial reaction was when he was signed. Because I remember when he was signed, I was like, Oh, okay. You know, I've seen him play with Chicago. Like he's, he's decent. Like he'll be a nice, like 11th man, or he could be like a guy who plays in, in injury spots. And then he ends up being kind of like the, the de facto six man for most of the year.
1: The glue in a lot of ways. Yeah, he was... Like, this This roster arrangement doesn't really work all that well with Justin Holiday.
0: Oh, 100%.
1: And, yeah, my initial reaction when they signed him, I remember I wrote a piece about um, him and Aaron together because when he was in Chicago, he shot significantly better from the corners than he did above the break. And in Aaron's rookie year, he a lot of times had a blind spot. Like, he wouldn't see Doug in the corner. And I thought, you know, this is, like, brotherly love right here. Like you're going to recognize your brother in the corner and this could help um, Aaron develop that skill and vice versa. Like Justin's going to get the most, you're going to get the most out of Justin if you're hitting him in that spot. And as it turns out, he he just shot the heck out of the ball pretty much all year. But like, I wasn't opposed to it, but yeah, to see him, I, if you would have asked me is Justin holiday, a stretch four? I would have probably been like, Mm -hmm. "Eh, no, like I, I don't think that I would have thought that that's what role he would have settled into.
0: Yeah, I would still say no. I hope that if he has to right, but, next year, but I would, to
1: successfully yeah. no, do it exactly, to the degree yeah. that he did. But yeah. yeah.
0: And I think so my play that, that I pulled for Justin came in, I think it was in game four. It was game three or game four against Miami? And it was within like the first minute or two of the game. He's matched up on on Duncan Robinson and got the assignment of chasing him over screens. Uh so he j- he chases Duncan Robinson over the first bam out of bio screen. Uh forces a pass out from the corner after Duncan gets the ball and Duncan sets a back screen for Jimmy Butler, who comes around and then screens the screener for Duncan and Justin just sticks right with it. goes back over another bam out of bio screen, which is also a handoff for Duncan Robinson. He gets to the top of the key. Justin is still right on his hip and he has to pass the ball out again. And it results in a bam out of bio contested 12 forter that misses. And I think that was just like, Justin Holiday for me, like the dude was insanely good on his rotations this year, um, out on the perimeter and with the, using his length. Um, I, I, you know, I I knew he was a good defender coming in, but I I just you look at him and you think, okay, he has like that really thin wiry frame. You don't necessarily, and it's funny because conversely, like looking at Aaron and, and Drew, like they have very very different body types. Like Aaron and Drew are some of the they look like they could be linebackers somewhere, um, and Drew looks like a 6-6 six, six receiver you know like um so I I always just think in terms of, of Justin's ability to to really stay on someone he was really good at sticking on people um and I did I didn't want to do the disservice of <laughs> pulling one of the clips where he had to guard someone in the post and was actually really good on it but um his perimeter defense is what really stood out for me this year
1: right I mean a lot of times he would be the stop before a stop. I mean, you mentioned that of him Mm -hmm. chasing Duncan Robinson over on the dribble handoff. Like that's not going to show up in a box score other than like in matchup data that Duncan didn't get a shot. But there's a lot of times where Justin kept somebody from getting a shot. Exactly. And um, yeah, I mean, even in the bubble game uh, there in Orlando against Orlando, he was, he was chasing out of floppy and uh, Terrence Ross was going to take uh, he even saw that Justin had shot the gap and was going to take a different path to the corner that made Justin have to come even further. And he busted through those picks and got there on the catch. Like sometimes it's just really insane to watch some of the details of his defense. But um, as you said, and I said, with, the, with the four position, uh, there were times in that heat series where Kelly Olynyk sealed him under the basket yep. and got points. There was times throughout the year. I mean, uh, we could have pointed to it in the Michael Porter Jr. game. Oh yeah, I, that he I just, just didn't understand. have the size there to Man, he, match. He played up.
0: like perfect defense on him the entire. All right, game, I mean he wasn't making matter.
1: mistakes. Yeah, I mean even up in Portland, I remember uh, he's guarding Carmelo Anthony, and yeah, like am I going to be super upset if Carme- Carmelo j- like jab steps at the block for a really long time <laughs> nope. and then turns around and shoots? I'm not. But and Justin was he was battling and trying to make that a tough shot. But what you get out of that is the Pacers were sending a double because Carmelo had scored a couple times, and then you're getting a rotation to the point where, okay, now it's TJ McConnell sinking in to Hassan Whiteside, and Hassan Whiteside's getting an easy putback out of Carmelo's miss. So those were things that the Pacers gave up with him at the four, and we probably should have mentioned this in my little TJ McConnell piece, that depending upon how else the Pacers balance out the roster – if they do find like a more prototypical four, then I think if you happen to re-sign Justin, that you probably ideally wouldn't want to be playing him at the four. I mean, he's ideally a wing shooter. Mm-hmm. So that could also bust up again, like the TJ minutes. You'd probably be seeing even more of TJ on the bench. Cause if you want to get Aaron minutes and you're going to play Justin in a bench two or three role, then you're not going to have space for TJ McConnell. But um, yeah. And it goes back to the Jeremy thing too. Like, Literally played 48 percent as a bench player played 48 percent of their closing lineups at the beginning of the season over Jeremy Lamb and he also played minutes in closing lineups over Miles Turner or Sabonis but more often Miles Turner before they started towards the end of the season closing double big they were playing small with Justin out there so I mean he was a crucial piece of everything that the Pacers did
0: yeah yeah exactly and um, he just can't really understand how important he was. And I, I'm excited for him to, I'm hopeful that he will be on the roster next year. Um, which is something, you know, we'll get into that in a little bit, but, um, him getting to play more of a natural position is, is something that I really look forward to, especially because just the length that he can provide on, on defense, wherever he's at, it's going to be instrumental. Well, yeah.
1: I have to hop in and say just this one thing that I always have to say about Justin is that his three-point percentage really didn't waver that much month over month, despite mm-hmm. the fact that he was guarding up a position. Like a lot of times, like you, the Pacers saw this with CJ miles. You'll see this across other teams that if you're having to guard up a position and doing all that wrestling, it can over the course of a season, have an impact on a guy's legs to the point where he's not really hitting those shots anymore. And to Justin's credit, like that guy battled and he kept hitting shots even though he was playing out of position. So I just have to give him a lot of credit for that.
0: Thank you for reminding me about CJ miles at the four in, uh, in that, that year, that was, it was, that crazy. was not a fun year. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my one number is 1.19. You know what that is?
1: Is that a point per possession on something?
0: That is his points per shot attempt this year, which is in the 77th percentile among wing wing players. Um, And it was also, like, I think it was 10 higher than his next closest. His career high was 1.08 points per shot attempt before this year. So, obviously, a huge markup. Um, and you, when you put it in tandem with, he had a 12% usage percentage this year. Uh, so, that's obviously very low for anyone, not just a wing player. Um, I think that, it, that speaks more to his offensive versatility than his defensive versatility. I mean, um, he can do stuff on ball. He shot – bo- I believe it was over 40% on pull-up threes prior to the bubble. Or even if you include the bubble, I think he shot over 40% on pull-up threes. Uh, but he, he doesn't need the ball to have an impact. And I I just think, you know, if scoring that many points per shot attempt, obviously incredibly efficient. Um, and this was, I think, the first year he ever shot above 40% from the field, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Right. Like, I, I don't feel um... – it's kind of like watching Danny Green dribble sometimes. Like I don't feel <laughs> yes. really good about watching Justin Holiday put the ball on the floor, but if he's dribbling into a shot coming off of a screen, yeah, I mean, I think my enduring memory of the bench this season is going to be watching he and Doug McDermott run, you know, the JJ Redick version of floppy where you know, screen, get a screen, Doug coming off the double side and drawing all that gravity and Justin coming off the other wing and hitting that, that shot. Like that was just open for him so much at the time and he he hit those shots coming out the opposite wing. And, and like you say, he's, he makes quick decisions and he doesn't dink around with the basketball. Like it, it's either a shot's going up or he's making the next pass.
0: Yeah. He's uh he reminds me like a little bit of, I don't know how much of Utah you watch, but he's kind of like him and Royce O'Neill are very similar players where a, they're both kind of underrated on defense, but also uh, well, his assist numbers aren't great. Um, He's a great like secondary passer, you know, like he always makes the uh, he's a great swing passer. So he'll get the ball on the wing a lot of times off the first pass. And he's great at just making a really quick decision on where it's going to go next. And I think that's like, um, I think Ben Taylor put it, he called it uh, not, it's not obviously not a glue guy, but like connective tissue. He's like the connective tissue of an offense. Like you have point A and point B, but you have the things that connect both those points. And I think that's kind of emblematic of, of how Justin plays.
1: Yep. So what what do we have as the over/under? I'm nervous. I'm nervous. I,
0: I actually am very proud of myself for coming up with this one. My over/under is nine point two five eight. Do you know what that is?
1: No, I have no clue.
0: Well, per Bobby Marks, he expects the MLE to be. Oh, that's the mid-level exception. Year. That is the mid-level exception. Do you expect it's more of a under or exactly on? Um, would you, if you you know, gun to your head right now? Um, would you go over, I mean under or on the mid level exception for Justin?
1: Well, I don't interestingly enough, I don't think depending upon where the tax line is, I don't think that the pacers can spend the full. I think that they can only spend about eight million of that depending upon where the tax is. So mm-hmm. then I would lean the under because I don't think that herb Simon's gonna go into the tax to pay Justin Holiday, but do I think another team might? That's a different conversation. Like I don't, I'd have to look at what all teams have tax base, but we there are rumors out there that the Knicks are highly interested. I did have, I was on a Nick podcast a couple of weeks ago, and
0: I listened. I, yeah, Pod Strickland is awesome for people who have not listened or gotten yes. into the, the Strickland. But
1: the Pod Strickland folk told me that there is interest in in Justin Holiday up in that uh, area. So um, I could see him getting those offers. I'm not going to lie. Like I, I, I mean, Justin fits on a lot of rosters.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And it's interesting because this is less about the over-under. I think I would probably take the uh, maybe like under. Well, I don't think he's
1: going to get more than that. Oh, so yeah. I, I don't I think I he'll get more.
0: Um, I mean, yeah. Um, I just mean, it's, I should just put, obviously, the MLE is not a number, but like, I mean, you can't just say MLE is the number, but I I, cause I wasn't sure an exact number, but I think the way that I look at it is he is kind of, you know, not to put a ton of pressure on it. I want him to obviously be happy and do whatever's best for him in his career. Um, But he's kind of the swing piece of the Pacers free agency a little bit, because if, I mean, the Pacers have his cap hold and they can extend him on his cap hold, which is, I believe about five and a half million dollars. So if they do that, um, they can keep Justin, which would be huge because I think he's been such an instrumental part, like we've just been talking about. But then if, if they're able to sign Justin with the cap hold, they can still get a player on the MLE and, if they have to use the MLE on Justin, that totally changes uh, the kind of talent they can acquire in the off season. Because if, if you sign Justin who's hold, you can get a really quality player with the MLE. Um, if you have to use the MLE to re-sign Justin, then you're trying to draw in guys on the vet minimum. And I think that's, I mean, that completely changes the, the type of talent you bring in. I still have to, I, I, I'm waiting until the season is completely over. to really dig into free agency because I think we'll, It's not going to ever really be super – it's never going to be super clear, but, you know, it's not – there's never really great projections or numbers on guys until after the season's fully over. But um, it's a big difference in talent. So I think that's something I'm really interested to see what happens.
1: No, that's a really good point. Now now I'm totally regretting my TJ McConnell over-under, I think, because I did get told by somebody – About, oh, I don't know. I I think it was before bubble play started. So we have to take this a bit with a grain of salt. But I did get told that there, and I know who it is, but I won't say who it is here, Mm -hmm. that in the draft that they do have a player circled that uh, would be a stretch four. Currently plays five, but is a more prototypical stretch four that they really like in the second round. So whether that guy would be ready to play right out of the gate is a whole other question, but I they, they realize that they need somebody in that role and that, that they'd want to get him into the pipeline because I know that they really like a guy at that pick that that they would like to add. So I think that if Justin did come back, it's more likely than not that he would be playing at his more natural position acting on the assumption that that person would be ready in season one which is a big assumption and and like we said that they're just now getting to the process i know a lot got reported about the draft yesterday and when interviewing and pro day videos and whatnot can happen and and their overall opinion could change based on other people that they meet with but i know that there's somebody at the four spot that they like
0: that's spicy i'm interested to know who someday um yeah well i think regardless we have a we have a lot to look forward to with uh Obviously I I have to dive into draft work still. I am, I've been putting it off, but it's going to happen. I have a list of guys that I have to watch film on. I just haven't actually started doing it yet. So it's going to happen someday or another, probably this weekend. Um, But Caitlin, do you have any, any closing thoughts or anything before we get out of here?
1: Right. So next time that you hear from both of us, unless some like emergency pod would pop up over the weekend, um, we will be covering the starters in the same format, one play, one number, one over under, and then we'll be wrapping all this up and we'll be close to heading into the countdown for everything that we were just getting into, off-season, free agency, draft, like basketball never stops people. There's still going to be content at in Indy Cornrows, so head over there.
0: There will indeed, and draft content will be happening as much as I am uh, not quite ready to jump into it. It will happen, um, but Caitlin, thanks for coming on. It may
1: not <laughs> happen for me. I've
0: very, written,
1: I don't. I have never written a draft scouting report. I do not enjoy doing draft content. Tom knows this about me that I pretty much beg off of that. So that's I know Tom hilarious. told me
0: that I. Well, he didn't tell me I have to do some, but he was like, "Yeah, if you want to do some, that would be cool." I'm like, "Yeah," it. <laughs> but uh, yeah. it's actually really funny because you told me the the gosh, it was probably two or three months ago, and you did that Disney draft thing. Well, I did not realize it was Disney draft because I remember you telling me uh, when when we were when I asked you what you were working on before we closed the pod and uh, you said you were doing draft work for like the first time ever. And I told my friend, I'm, I'm uh, kind of Twitter friends with PD web. I don't know if you know him, but he does some incredible. Oh, no,
1: yeah. Incredible
0: draft stuff. And I DM'd him because he really enjoys your work. I'm like, Hey dude, Caitlin is doing draft stuff. And he was like spot with 85,000 exclamation points. Right. And then he he, he sees your draft work come out, and he, he DMs me, and he's like, I hate you. Like, you got my hopes up so much. But, uh, yeah. Yeah,
1: that was an SB Nation team side assignment that I knew I was going to have to write a Disney draft. And there were some people angry with me that later on. They're like, where was your draft report? You said you are going to write one of those. I was like, I did write one about Trusty from Lady and the Tramp. Oh, man. But, yeah. So, I might – I might write one about this one particular player once we get closer to the draft, but I'll have to twist my own arm into doing it because I greatly detest it.
0: I concur. Well, Caitlin, this was fun to everyone listening at home. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Check us out on Spotify and anywhere else you can get your podcast. Be sure to shoot us any questions, comments, anything on Twitter or any cornrows and read us at any cornrows. Most importantly, have a good rest of your day.